Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Our guest for this episode is strength coach Keith Mueller of Higher Ground Athletics, who is based here in Boulder, Colorado, where I am, uh, but he also offers remote training programs. And I was introduced to Keith by a friend when I was looking for someone to help me with strength training technique last year. And I quickly realized the depth of his knowledge and his incredibly holistic understanding of human physiology and really appreciate chatting with him on things. So I'm excited he's here. So with all of that being said, Keith, thanks for being here and tell us a bit more about your background and what you do and just kind of your overall high level philosophy when it comes to helping endurance athletes succeed in the weight room. Uh, sure, Leslie, thanks for uh, inviting me. Um, as, as you mentioned, my name's Keith. My project is called Higher Ground Athletics. And the ethos of that is just to be a problem solver for endurance athletes. And often one of the biggest problems that needs solving is trying to find balance in the way that athletes, you're a triathlete, but the way that endurance athletes um, manage balancing the mechanical demands of their training and the metabolic demands of their training. It's really easy to say that we're just out there trying to get as aerobic as possible, trying to get as fit as possible, but often that mechanical piece is missing. And there's really an easy, easily identified archetype of athlete that needs help with the mechanical stuff. And those are the people who are injured all the time. Anytime they get to a certain amount of volume, a certain amount of miles per week, something hurts, they end up needing some help. So most of the work that I do is in a gym, but you know, I know Leslie, you know, based on conversations that we've had that my interests in helping athletes extend way, way beyond a gym. Um, so that, that gets involved with, I'm, I'm married to a registered dietitian. So we think about nutritional stuff. We think about kind of uh, physiological testing and just, trying to find ways that we can make people's training better so that they're better prepared for the sport. And you mentioned physiological testing, and that's one thing I wanted to ask about that you, you know, that we have chatted about. I haven't done the full testing, but will you explain the MOXIE testing that you do? And let me know if I'm referring to it correctly, but the MOXIE testing and just how that's different than the standard lactate testing that athletes do. Sure. I mean, anytime a coach is trying to take someone through an assessment, we're trying to get a sense of how their body solves the physiological puzzle of going at, we can just call it race pace, or, you know, you come in thinking this is what I can do, but if you want to win races, there's race pace, and then there's the pace of the race. And so we're thinking about how somebody solves that physiological puzzle. And there's a lot of ways to, to figure that out. You can try to see this whole thing kind of centers on the idea of a threshold, right? Or this forced transition between sustainable uh, effort, a sustainable workload, and then a workload that's not sustainable anymore. And the farther you go, the harder effort you go beyond that, that threshold, the shorter the fuse is, the shorter amount of time that you have. So there's a million and one ways to try to get a sense of that, whether it's power, heart rate, perceived exertion, and then, you know, blood markers like lactate that we know is a metabolite that correlates pretty well with effort um, or expired gases if you're using like a mask. Um, but there's relatively new technology of what's called near-infrared spectroscopy, the MOXIE monitor being the kind of leading brand for, for this, where um, you would put a sensor on a muscle on the skin, light is shined into the tissue, 
And based on the wavelengths that come back to the sensor, there's a bunch of math that's done to give you an idea of what the supply demand relationship of oxygen in that working muscle is. Um, it's, it's measuring the percentage of hemoglobin that is bound to oxygen. And what's really cool about that is it gives you a sense of that supply demand relationship in live time in a working muscle. And the epiphany for me, when I was uh, reading resources about this five, six years ago, was that any of your zones, whether it's lactate, power, pace, heart rate, all of those are just proxies that are trying to capture exactly what I'm talking about, the supply demand relationship of oxygen. That is the actual variable that um, determines intensity, right? How close we are to it being a forever pace or a one hour pace or a very unsustainable pace, it all hinges on oxygen. So the fact that we could measure that accurately and non-invasively and portably is, is very exciting. So it's something that I've kind of dove into and it's been a hobby for a little bit, but now here in Boulder, I've got some people that are, whether I'm asking them or them asking me to, to do some testing and getting better and better at that interpretation. What's really interesting about a ramp test with a MOXIE monitor is the information that it spits out. If you, if you do a, what's called a five, one test, five minutes work, one minute rest and continue at higher and higher effort until um, a, an intensity that you can't sustain for five minutes, then you get some information that helps you infer the limiting system in an athlete's uh, a performance, whether it's uh, oxygen uptake via the respiratory system, it's delivery through the cardiovascular system, or it's utilization and local musculature, you get a sense of which of those systems hits its ceiling first as intensity rises. And that's probably what gives rise to the athlete's threshold. So you mentioned like referencing moxie stuff versus lactate. You can absolutely make amazing, really good productive training decisions off of lactate if you put the time in. Um, but lactate tends to be um, just descriptive. Same thing with VO2 max testing, same thing with an FTP, FTP test. It will tell you what your threshold is if you perform the test well, but it doesn't give you that much information about why your threshold is what it is and what you might do to improve it. Right. And that's what I think was really interesting when you've told me about that testing is it's like, you can have two athletes that can run this, you know, elite athletes that can run the same marathon time, but they have different limitations physiologically. And that's kind of what that testing, um, you know, what that testing shows from my understanding. And I just yeah, think like that's really a cool, innovative, you know, thing that a lot of people don't really know about. Sure. Like, like I said, it's a physiological puzzle and you can solve it a lot of different ways. At the end of the day, you're just pr producing the velocity, right? You just need to find a way to harness the energy to go at the pace of the race or your race pace or whatever right. it might be. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to do that. And very importantly, training, the way I think about training is the, the doors you walk through in training to, to increase your capacity and get fitter, some of those doors often close behind you right? What, what got you where you are right now can't necessarily get you where you're going, right? And what's really interesting about uh, Moxie is um, I've identified some respiratory limitations in athletes. It's really complicated how you get there. It's pretty, pretty tricky detective work, which is why it's taken a lot of practice for me to kind of run things through tests and try to say, this is what we think the the story in the data is. But I've been amazed at how often the story that I present them ends up 
matching up pretty perfectly with sensations that they've had in their bodies for years. And then it gives us some hunches to follow about things and gaps they might need to fill in their training. But what's interesting about like, if you think about a respiratory limitation, the, for, for a long time, VO2 max, your maximal oxygen uptake, it was assumed by sports science that the only limiting factor would be the cardiovascular system, right? So improvements always are gonna come from increased cardiac output and the respiratory system was thought to be overbuilt for the demands of exercise. It's never gonna be an issue. It's always gonna be able to cope with the demand. And what we're finding is even in normal, healthy people, that's absolutely not the case. And it's more likely for you to have a respiratory limitation the greater your training age and the fitter you are. The idea that the rate at which you can bring oxygen in and get it into the blood through the pulmonary system or the mechanical ability to move enough air or your ability to just delay respiratory fatigue, the idea that those could be limitations for you and be the, the first system that hits its ceiling, that's sort of a badge of honor that you have to be really fit in order to arrive at. For most people, their cardiovascular system or their local muscle infrastructure are gonna be the limiting factor in that factory, the assembly line of getting oxygen to the, to the you know, energy making steps, if you know what I mean. Yes, totally. Yeah, it, it's very cool approach. And I would personally like to know more at some point. But um, so going on to another topic, sure. you mentioned that you work with athletes in the weight room who have had, you know, a chronic injury or multiple injuries to try to help them get past that. What's your philosophy? And what do you think is the most important thing? Someone who's dealing with injuries, what's the most important focus they can have, let's say specifically in the weight room? And how do you approach that? Hmm, that's a tricky thing to answer. It might not be answering your question directly, but I can kind of mention what I think like the, the layers of, of why, we, why we would get in the gym uh, might be. So if you're an endurance athlete, um, endurance implies submaximal. Like, you, you know, it's not a momentary sport. It's gonna take, gonna take a while, sometimes hours and hours and hours for you to, for you to get through your effort. And submaximal, if endurance implies submaximal, submaximal intensity can only be understood in relation to maximal, right? So if we're thinking about maximal, that's like a maximal momentary contraction, like how hard can you contract? How, how much force can you produce in something like a deadlift or a, a run specific isometric or something? like that, or it might be, you might understand maximal of like your fastest 400 or your fastest mile or your 30 second power or something like that. There's a lot of different ways to define maximal, but you need to know where that ceiling is. And it's well understood that we can get athletes race pace and threshold to improve by raising their ceiling at the maximal end, right? In general, like any, any coach that's smart understands that you get somebody better by doing a lot of work below race pace to push it up from below. You spend some time at race pace and you do work above race pace to drag it up from above. And if you do all three of those, then you're probably covering your bases pretty well. Systems that invest in just one of those strategies tend to get people fitter only for a year or so. And then you need to go back to the base or you need to reintroduce intensity above threshold or whatever it might be. Um, but strength is just a, a great opportunity to introduce somebody to maximum, right? give somebody a, a, an idea for what that is and a contact, context for what that is and regular exposure to maximum. And often that can be 
with heavy weight or, or things like that. Another layer to it is giving somebody exposure to movement variety, right? And if somebody's injured, then often there's some movement options missing, what people will describe as mobility. There's, there's something, something missing that you might have to do some detective work to figure out in the gym of like, you need more exposure to this range of motion or tension within this range of motion and finding some way to, to get tissue to respond. Um, so movement variety is another huge thing. And then the final thing is just building up the durability of that tissue. At the end of the day, like you need to produce more force in order to go faster. And the way that Newton's laws of motion works, that if you exert force on the world, then it gets exerted back onto you in an equal and opposite fashion. So you have to be good at dissipating forces through your skeleton, your tendons, your muscles. And the gym is where we accelerate that process rather than just trusting that the amount of miles per week you run is enough to bring that along. Does that answer your question? It does. And it also answers, I think, a question that you know, it goes along with that, that a lot of endurance athletes have, which is, okay, how important is strength training? You know, triathletes want to swim, bike and run, you know, as much as they can. And they think that that's, you know, the, the only thing that's needed. Um, and, and I say that, I think a lot of triathletes realize that strength training is helpful. I just think sometimes it helps to have someone like you explain kind of the why. And when you say that, as far as like, you know, that maximal training, that you're probably not going to get elsewhere. I think that really, you know, that puts it in good perspective. So thank you for explaining that. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask about is you mentioned, you know, varying your movements and I've talked to you a lot about joint mobility and mm -hmm. that kind of brings me to something like stretching, which a lot of athletes, which you and I have talked about, and a lot of athletes will you know, do a 10 minute warm up, kind of touch their toes a couple of times, hold a stretch for 10 seconds. And, you know, and, and I would obviously look to you to explain more, but from what you have told me, that's basically really not doing much. And I, so I'm curious what your approach is to stretching before workouts and what you tell athletes about that. Sure. So when people talk about stretching, we're usually talking about like passive stretching, like hanging out at a range of motion, like getting into length, feeling a stretch sensation, which is kind of centrally mediated. If you think about, um, you, you know, you touch your toes and you try to stretch your hamstrings and everyone knows what that sensation is like, but we don't often uh, think too much about where it, it comes from. And the way I describe it to athletes usually is you have tension receptors in your tissues. And depending on whether they're in muscles or tendons, they have different names, but at the end of the day, their job is to collect some information about how much mechanical strain is on the tissue and relay that back to the, to the nervous system. And if the nervous system doesn't like how much length you're putting into a tissue, how, how deep into a stretch you're going or how much um, magnitude of tension there is, then a stretch reflex is kind of a shortening uh, against that, right? So instead of relaxing and allowing to lengthen, those fibers are going to contract to resist lengthening any further. And we think of this as like a protective mechanism. If you think about where you feel stretches, it's going to be in ranges of motion that you don't visit very often. You don't feel stretches typing on a keyboard or reaching for something in a cabinet or whatever it might be that you do all the time, because doing it all the time reinforces the fact that there doesn't need to be any protective mechanism there. Right. Um, and it's, it's often just really interesting to tell people that, you know, from what I've been told, if you were anesthetized for surgery, 
then you would be able to be folded however they wanted to fold you, not to put that uh, in somebody's mind. But, you know, that that nervous system part goes away when we're when we're not conscious, you could kind of be uh, that that stretch reflex isn't isn't a part of things anymore. So often, if we're trying to improve somebody's range of motion, at least in terms of the flexibility piece of it, there's also a joint workspace piece of it. Um, if we're trying to improve flexibility, then you have to be interacting with the nervous system. And often the way to do that is to try to make positions active. So there's absolutely a place to hanging out in positions, hanging out in stretches. There's a reason to do that, but it takes time. 10 seconds, 30 seconds won't do it. You have to be there for enough time that the muscle spindles, that the Golgi tendon organs actually can receive what's going on and, and make some change. But if you get active, if you try to contract actively in those positions, then that ends up being a little bit of a shortcut because you're getting the brain involved. And the way I think of it, you're kind of showing the brain like, hey, I'm safe here. I can absorb and produce forces here. There's no need for this stretch reflex. And after a few or a lot of exposures, depending on what we're talking about, you can kind of take that stretch away and then you end up with usable range of motion that ideally you have access to, you know, first thing in the morning when you wake up. Um, and that's what we talk about with kind of movement options is if somebody's just fighting their own restriction to get into positions, especially sports specific positions, like, you know, an aero position on a, on a bike, then that's something you want to get, get away from as quickly as you can. You don't want to be fighting yourself in a sport. That's all about efficiency. Yes, totally makes sense. Um, So I would say as kind of a final thing to ask you or kind of just, is there any general advice that you would give to, you know, not just triathletes, but endurance athletes in general, as far as, and again, just very generally, because I know you offer very, very specific, you know, both in person and remote um, types of coaching, but what generally do you think triathletes should be doing when it comes to strength training, as far as just kind of types of lifts you know, number of times per week, just kind of in an ideal world, what, what would be your general advice on that? Sure. I'm going to go way more general than what you just asked for, and then we'll come back to it. Right. So the, the ethos is train everything, right? Like don't like this, the specificity principle is really important. If your sport is swim, bike, run, then the pie graph of your training is overwhelmingly swim, bike, run. And I'd never argue against that. Right. But the idea that other things are allowed to be zero and occupy none of that pie graph, I will argue against, right? So the idea is, is train everything, swim, bike, run, but then also make sure that your joints move through their full range of motion all the time. I would say on a daily basis, you want muscles to experience lots of tension when they're all the way lengthened and when they're all the way shortened. And for the most part in the middle sort of takes care of itself if you're training at end range, right? Um, you need to contract maximally. Often that's picking up heavy weight and getting load on your skeleton. That ends up being two birds with one stone, right? We get some bone density stuff, but you don't have to pick up heavy weight in order to have maximal. You can do plyometric stuff. You can do uh, contracting hard into the ground at end range stuff, you know, remember pale and rail contractions from when we were going over stuff. Um, so what did I say so far? Sorry, I lost my train of thought. You want to train everything. You want your muscles to experience tension at length and all the way shortened. You want to work with heavy weight and you want to 
make sure your joints move through their full range of motion all the time. So if I'm writing a program, I want to get all those exposures and um, make sure that there's a balance of that, usually on like a weekly 10 day basis. And then if you zoom out, it's more and more uh, present. You're not going to get everything every day. Nobody needs to be in the gym necessarily every day, but you try to spin those plates as much as you can and then uh, manage all that stuff. So I would say somebody needs to find a lift that they're comfortable performing. Like machines can be really helpful here. I've become a big fan of uh, a hack squat machine. If you imagine like a, a machine where the sled that your body is on is kind of at a 45 degree angle and you can squat up and down, that ends up being great because it puts people in kind of this perfect, almost impossible position that nobody can achieve with a barbell. A deadlift is a great example, whether it's with a trap bar or a barbell. Deadlifting is a, an excellent exercise that you can load up pretty heavy. Those would be the two, two big ones. Lunging heavy is really good. Just gain a relationship with loading things up in movements that you can perform for less than 10 reps, usually much less than 10 reps. As far as moving your joints through their full range of motion, I'm a huge fan of a system called FRC, functional range conditioning. The movements that they have in their system, they call CARS, controlled articular rotations. It's a very acronym heavy, heavy system of uh, a training of some, some physical therapists that tried to figure out some, a way to systematize training for joint function, right? Which is a very trainable thing. It's, if you have a, a hip that is shrink wrapped and it doesn't internally or externally rotate, it's not really too harsh to say that your hip is on its way to not being a hip anymore. And you need some training inputs that make that hip more of a hip. And the, you know, the foundational thing for most joints is for them to rotate. Um, so those cars movements end up being great exposure to how do we use joints in a rotational way, but then it's also a great exposure to kind of carving through the entire workspace of the joint. If you imagine like this action figure hip where you have a very simple head of the femur and the socket of the hip, think about taking the head of the femur everywhere that it can go within that articulation, that's the single most important thing in keeping your hip a hip is for that to be happening all the time. And unfortunately, run, bike, swim doesn't include all those ranges of motion, not all the rotation, not adduction, abduction. It's mostly just flexion and extension, right? So you need to find exposure to that somewhere else. So you can type into YouTube cars. I've got a cars routine on, on my YouTube channel. If you search, uh, higher ground athletics cars routine, you'll see something like that, but you can look anywhere. Capital C, capital A, capital R, S. Really good thing to, to look for there. Those two things are huge. The, and if we think about like filling the gaps left by endurance training, articulating more and getting more movement variety and then loading up and contracting really hard, just in general terms, like you asked, those are, those are huge just by themselves. Those can be, make a world of difference for somebody that feels like their body just doesn't um, hold together and adapt to training as quickly as they might like. Yes, totally. And all of this you're saying, you know, you and I have chatted on and it really opened my mind to thinking about things different. And I just, yeah, very much appreciate the knowledge. So, uh, you know, sure, you it's like, you're... go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, you mentioned your YouTube channel and your website, Higher Ground Athletics. And then I know also on Instagram, you know, you have an account where you share a lot of information. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. If, if people want to read more about what you think or learn a little bit more about what you do, those are some good resources. 
Sure, yeah. Um, YouTube is where I throw a bunch of like movement demo videos. Part of being a strength coach is having a big reservoir of, you know, exercises to give people for the right thing at the right time. And so I couldn't find a lot of the videos I need. So I've started making them and I've got, you know, well over 500, I think, demo videos of exercises that might be the right thing for you at the right time. So you can search through that. Obviously, like my job as a coach is to figure out that what is needed when piece, but it's, it's there um, publicly for anyone to look at and, and experiment with. Um, my website just has more information about what I do as a coach and kind of my ethos. And then Instagram is where I just put videos about the stuff my athletes are doing and writing about training that I think is interesting. I'm not really a big, like convert you into a customer type of guy. I, I want people checking out my Instagram that are interested in training and are just interested in thinking about training. So join me there if that's your thing. Yes, totally. And I definitely know that about you. So I wanted to point out all the great information you put out there. So, uh, well, I think that's pretty much all the questions I have on my end. And we covered a lot of good stuff that I think people, again, don't really think about all the time. So thank you so much for being here and hope to see you soon. Yeah, we'll see you soon. You and I are in the same town. So we'll cross paths soon. Thanks yes. for inviting me, Leslie. All right, thanks. Heath, I'm not done with you. Okay. I'm just kidding. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I think what I was, I was just kind of listening in the background and sure. an active listener here. So um, I think the biggest problem athletes run into, and you'll probably agree to this, is they do all of the swim, bike, run, and then they barely do any of the strength work. So the only way I've found athletes actually follow through with this stuff is to hire a strength coach like yourself. Hmm. Do you work with distance athletes? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the population I moved to Boulder to work with. Um, I've found myself meeting a marathoner pretty quickly here in town that connected me with a lot of people that I'm at this point excited to have just met. Um, but yeah, those are, those are my people. I meant, I meant like athletes find that virtual. Sorry. I didn't mean, I meant. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 I do have a, like a remote template that people can hop onto that you can find information on, on my website. Um, it, on there, when you read about it, it kind of says, you know, not for everyone as in this is for people who are ready to take that step and make the strength piece, a committed and important part of their weekly training rhythm. So, you know, you can learn some information about that and, and try it out. There's tons of people out there that put out plenty of great information for people of all levels to, to uh, do things. I tend to be a pretty detail-oriented guy, and I've learned not to be bashful about that. If, um, but you should check it out if, it's, if detail is your thing. Do you integrate with, like, let's say there's an endurance coach already in the picture. Do you integrate with a training protocol that's kind of laid out for an athlete, or would you prefer to have system all to yourself? Oh, um, most of the people that I work for, I'm not their sports specific coach. Like I'm very much a supplemental person and I, I do my best to stay in my lane. Um, you know, the, the moxie testing stuff that Leslie and I talked about is a bit of a hobby. Uh, and at the end of the day, I want to just get as close to somebody's training as, as they'll let me, if somebody's got problems, they need solving. They let me have, have as much input as, as I can. That's great. But I've definitely, I definitely work for people where I just stay in my lane and have never communicated with their sport specific coach. Don't have any plans to, and I just try to do my thing there. And then I have other, other folks where I'm much more 
involved at much more of a cook in the kitchen with everybody else as well. Would you agree that the hips are uh, you know, probably the most vital asset athletes, endurance athletes, triathletes, specifically the hips in general need to be a focal point of sure. mobility strengthening. I mean, would you, is it true that a lot of the lower leg injuries, a lot of the low back injuries are usually originated around a hip imbalance, weakness, or otherwise? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I tend not to be a guy that spends too much energy, like hunting for the source of somebody's pain or an explanation about uh, somebody's pain that they're having. Cause I think there are some pretty good, like true North ideas to fall back on, like just giving somebody exposure to a lot of, uh, movement variety and making sure that that joint, like, so if we're talking about the hip, I'm going to make sure that the hip does everything that a hip does on a regular basis, probably every day. And that is often enough to dissolve away a lot of simple aches and pains. The next layer of that is thinking, well, like, well, there's all these movement options that the hip has, all these degrees of freedom that it needs to have, but only a few of those are used in something like running. And there's probably a very specific, I tend not to be a guy that likes to use the word pattern, but we will hear there tends to be a pattern that the hip needs to go through that's going to be the most powerful and efficient for a running stride. And then you just take a look and see if somebody's running or they're walking looks like that and try to troubleshoot and provide uh, exercises that can get them to feel that, that stance. There's this, um, idea of like quad dominance in running. And I can't tell you how many people like raise their hand and say like, Oh, I have, I I've been told I have excessive anterior pelvic tilt, or I've been told I'm very quad dominant without any real explanation for what that might mean or, or what my, that means. Or my glutes are not activating. Like that's something oh, else. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, bringing up that old chestnut. Right. Um, yeah. So how to chase that and solve that if it if it is really describing some real issue can be really complicated and i tend to stay away from that complexity and try to make it simple and say well you know the glutes wrap around the pelvis in such a way that they shorten from hip extension and hip external rotation so that means hip flexion and hip uh, internal rotation are going to lengthen that tissue. And if we want to build a tissue up, then we lengthen it. We give it a ton of tension under length. That's a secret of bodybuilders and you can have that one for free. Yeah. Um, I think so, so real quick, go ahead. I, I used to power lift all the time and I'd have really big biceps and I would never do curls, never do any of that bullshit. And a lot of the guys would come up and be like, I just, I do so much arm work. How do you get your biceps so big? And I said, well, I deadlift 600 pounds on a regular basis or more because I'm lengthening that muscle that's holding on such heavy weight. And that's been the best way for me to get bulk in any muscle. So to your point, I totally like, that's such a misconception that you got to curl for the girls to get those biceps. Sure. I mean, there's a million ways to do it. If you do want to get a muscle to grow and like hypertrophy is desired for endurance athletes. We don't want big muscle volume, but you want thick tendons. You want durable musculature. You want thick bones. Like that density is pretty important because that's like a direct line to being durable and being durable is a way to do more volume and doing more volume gets you fitter. Right? So we do want 
that that hypertrophy on some level. And of course, I end up working with a lot of endurance athletes that for one reason or another end up being too frail, right? They've uh, gone too far of just doing their sports specific stuff and aren't looking after their their tissue the way that they need to be. So often you have to do a little bit of bodybuilding. Uh, you know, an athlete that well, I would put that quad dominant archetype on, that they like to propel themselves forward using their quads and using knee extension, right? So they're not using hip extension. They're not using glutes and hamstrings. That's a very broad way to say it. There's a ton of caveats along with it, but we'll leave it at that. They need to learn how to feel glutes doing work. And the first entry point to that is getting length into there, right? So lunging very deeply, learning to hinge at the hips and allow the knee to roll in a little bit as you hinge to feel that length in the hip extension fibers of glute max, just giving people an idea for that. And then usually it'll show up in your running. A really interesting thing that I think about constantly is my time being an assistant coach for a big D1 girls program for high school cross country. And, you know, all these, um, I guess they were 14 to 18 year old young ladies who there was nothing you could ever say to them to clean up their running form if there was something that you thought was inefficient about it or unideal about it. I just had this epiphany then that um, your body is always running. Our nervous system is really good at finding the most efficient way to, that our body can do a thing, right? That's going to be almost that's automatic. How, that's why we watch kids and we're like, wow, those kids just do it so well because they haven't been tainted. Sure. And, but, and you know, your Nick, your running form is an expression of the options that your body has to produce running. If your ankle was in a cast for six months, then your running would start to look different when you got out of that cast, right? Because there's an, an option that has gone away. Your ankle and your midfoot would not move the same after being in that cast, right? So with the options that you have, your body is really good at finding the most efficient strategy to move you forward, whether it's running or pedaling a bike or whatever. If there's something missing that we think is inefficient or some reason that we think there's a better plan A, then you have to figure out what's missing and restore it, right? So in, in my mind, if we just get somebody doing the right ranges of motion with the right tension and feeling it the right way in the gym, that should trickle down into their running and often it does. And you don't have to really do too much really tedious and frustrating drill work and, and frustrating work of trying to get somebody to do, to do a thing that their body doesn't understand. You have to tease it away from running and get them to understand it in isolation. And that's training, right? Training is isolating some variable and trying to stimulate it to get it to improve because you can't do everything all at once. If you could, then the best way to get better at you know, a 70.3 would be to go do a 70.3 maximally every other day, right? You have to pull apart the ingredients of your fitness and try to work on them in, in relative isolation. And that's, that's, uh, the gym is an amazing environment to do that. Mechanically, that at least. Is that how you would kind of persuade or almost show those athletes who you were referencing, um, that D one school, is that how you would get them to adapt finally and understand, Hey, these physiological changes you've had that are limiting your performance through form and gait and inefficiencies, this is how we fix it. Is that, was the gym pretty much the place to do that? Yeah. As, as, as much as we could, you know, I, when I was a high school assistant coach, we had much less resources. I was a much less experienced and effective coach. And, um, there just wasn't as much time in the day when you're dealing with kids after school. So strength was very much a summer thing 
And then we just try to sustain as much of that as we could with intelligent warming up and some cool down stuff and just some movement variety at practice as much as we can. But a lot of that, you know, the gym time went away as soon as August 1st rolled around, you know, here in the States, cross country is a, a fall sport. So yeah, that's my answer to that is we just kind of, kind of did the best we can, but now kind of the gym built it into warmups and cool downs. Yeah. You got to find your way to get movement variety somewhere. If you got a kid that's committed enough and they want to know extra things you could do, you give them homework. There were, there were plenty of those kids. That's, what's great about, you know, having a competitive program with a hundred, hundred kids is they all, there's kids that want to climb the ladder over time. So you get to, you know, work with them and, and, and give them a chance to do extra stuff so that across from being a freshman to a senior, they could, they could, you know, improve a little bit faster than anybody else. So the typical triathlete who is a listener of our show and probably has been in the game for a while, spent copious amounts of money on resources to get to the starting line with great gear. I would say employing services that you provide are similar is probably one of the biggest game-changing assets for an athlete who trains 10 to 15 hours a week, is full-time job, you know, really independent, obviously strong-willed, and they need what you, what, the, what everything you've talked about more than probably anybody because they've probably experienced the repetitive injuries over and over, and they probably sit a lot. They probably travel a lot. There's probably a lot of inefficiencies with how they warm up and cool down and how they understand their movement through space. So I would foot stomp this episode for sure is if you're falling into that category of routine injury every six months or anytime you do a little bit too much or a little bit go on a trail run and then finally roll your ankle and then it's over. Like there's some instabilities that your body needs to adapt and you can do these things every day. You don't have to make it. And would I be okay to say also that you could do everything you need to do within a 20 to maybe even less than 30 minute session at home. You don't even need to go to the gym sometimes for all this stuff is you can do a lot of this maintenance pretty much under 30 minutes as you're cooling down or, you know, unwinding it. Would I be wrong in saying that? No. Yeah. I think and you're not wrong. I think you're right on there. Like I'm a huge fan of kind of micro dosing things and peppering it throughout the week and spreading it throughout the week as best we can. And I describe like the, the things you do to just take care of the general um, health of your mechanical body, separate from trying to improve your performance, those things that you do, it's movement hygiene, right? Giving yourself exposure to movement variety, spending some time, um, let's just say stretching, even though it should be more complicated than that. I liken it to brushing your teeth, right? You brush your teeth twice a day for a minute or two, and that's more effective than doing it for half an hour once a week, right? So you want to spread certain things throughout, throughout your day and just get regular exposure to them rather than just using intensity to ram your way ram your way through and just say, I, well, I did strength a couple of weeks ago, so I'm probably fine. I'll do it a, you know, a couple of days from now. And that that's all it seems to not cut it. We're really, a lot of this follows like a use it or lose it framework, yeah. right? You're trying to just give yourself regular exposure. It doesn't even have to be progressive some of the time. Yeah. And I, I think too, a lot of the principles that you, that we've been talking about 
it's not even just about athletic performance. Like these are things that as people age or say someone in their seventies or eighties, if you do these things throughout your life, it just seems like you're just going to be in a healthier, more mobile place as you age. So I don't, for me, even personally trying to focus a little more on strength training than I used to. A lot of it is for just thinking about, you know, longevity in the rest of my life, not even just triathlon. Yeah. You're right that there's a lot of crossover. Um, you know, one of the issues that we're fighting is like, if you're an endurance athlete and you're not experiencing movement variety, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's just such an important thing. If you're not experiencing movement variety, then all of your training hours have the effect of constraining the movement options and constraining what you can do with your body. Like it, it's just a fact that humans aren't really, we have not evolved to specialize physically. One could argue that walking is a specialized thing. Throwing is a specialized thing, but overall we're supposed to be able to do a lot of different things with our bodies. And you need some element of that, even if triathlon or cycling or rock climbing is something that you've just fallen in love with. You need a, a, a level of, of balance to the exposure that you give your body. Um, so if we're talking about just general health, you know, I describe this to people in the gym of saying like, we're not getting faster in the gym, but we're creating some adaptations that makes your body more receptive to training overall. We're, we're trying to build the body that can turn swim, bike, run into fitness as quickly as possible which is really, really valuable. But I, you know, I call that health, like a body that's really receptive to stress and can turn stress into adaptation, that's health. If you're ill or you're injured, then stress is not helpful. You can't turn it into adaptation. It just makes you less healthy. So we're trying to flip the switch. You know, if somebody's got Achilles tendinopathy and they're getting into the gym, we're trying to flip the switch so that uh, Achilles tendon can turn running into valuable stress anymore. Uh, start turning, running into valuable stress again, whereas the person is at the moment just circling the drain with running being painful. Yeah, right? that's a good perspective and makes total sense. Um, one last topic, um, taper week. I've personally, for years, and not so much now since I've started learning this, but the, if I have routine gym work, uh, I eliminate any of that kind of doms that comes along with having one or two really good sets of training and then not or strength training and then missing the gym for a week. And then going back into that habitual cycle of now I can't train my bike or run as well. So maintaining a three to four day a week, 15 to 35 minute strength session, not even lifting heavy weights at times, but just slightly enough to keep everything fresh and activated. Once I reduce training volume during training week or a taper week, and there's also a lot of travel and sitting and doing things I don't typically do, being able to tap into the gym or some really good, I would just, I guess we'll just say mobility habits that prevent my low back, my hips, my quads, everything, my shoulders from becoming stiff from lack of training the gym it seems to be a place where I can still go for that 15 to 20 minutes, keep things loose without adding fatigue and also being, you know, my, my bike's packed sometimes and like you just can't ride. So I feel like the gym also is a great taper week asset because it helps the body stay present. It doesn't go to total recovery mode and start overwhelmingly overcompensate with recharge and turn off and get flat. So anyways, 
what do you think about the gym helping athletes during taper during those bits of travel when they can't swim bike or run per usual is that also a good way to maintain not necessarily that specificity for triathlon but just general body feeling pretty good yeah i mean i think while you were saying that i kind of had the epiphany like the the level that you guys race at like the travel equation like travel can probably be harder on your body than racing sometimes you know in that it makes you feel off like you when you race you get fatigued in a way that's at least familiar to you versus what those long travel days can sometimes make you feel off in every single way yeah. uh, completely completely out of rhythm yeah i think the gym has a place there like anything that's a part of your training leading up to racing should none of it should fall off completely um it's just what is it what does it look like just how taper training on the in the pool and on the road and on the bike looks different than in race week than leading up to the race the gym can look a little bit different and that's where you look for like kind of sharpening efforts wake up efforts um i'm a big fan like let's say somebody's racing on saturday they're going to travel maybe racing sunday they're going to travel thursday on monday or tuesday getting into the gym and like pushing a heavy sled is amazing most people are pretty familiar with like contraction types uh just real quick a concentric contraction is a muscle shortening an eccentric contraction is a muscle lengthening under tension and an isometric contraction is a contraction where there is no length change happening either because you're holding a position or because you are pushing against an immovable object an eccentric contraction tends to be what accumulates and beats you up the most right so if we're thinking about race week then we want to stay away from lengthening under load and that's why a sled is amazing because the lengthening portion is just you taking an unloaded step forward so you can push really heavy weight you can get really hard contractions you can get the legs turning over in an interesting way but there's none of that eccentric load so i really love a sled for race week and then i really love um, just hard positional isometrics and in this case we're talking about pushing against an immovable object so imagine getting into a squat rack and if you go to my YouTube and search uh, knee ISO push, you should be able to find a video of it. Imagine getting into a squat rack with either a bar like through the uprights of the rack or the barbell loaded so heavily that you can't even move it. And you get into like what we would call a mid stance position. If you imagine like the down step picture in running, your foot's entirely on the ground, your knee is forward over your ankle, and your torso is pretty well vertical. So in a in that position you're getting wedged under the bar and then you drive up with quads into the bar and you get this really hard contraction right at the point uh, position where the isometric demand of running is the highest so it's a great way to just like really get that um tension you need to feel bouncy and springy for a run without any wear and tear without any faff of like moving through a bunch of range of motion it's a really good kind of wake up neuromuscular thing so i love that type of thing for race week and then depending on how comfortable an athlete is with like plyos and jumping and landing we'll do a little bit of that too i love it i think this is great um you know i, I won't really badger anymore leslie thanks for the great preliminary episode sorry to jump on so late but um I feel like if you're a triathlete and your triathlon coach isn't providing you an, an outreach for strength training to any effect, they're doing you a disservice. And I say that as a challenge to all triathlon and endurance coaches to make sure you push your athletes to integrate some form of what we've been talking about, what you guys have been talking about into their protocols 
the returns are going to just add your longevity and your performance is going to maybe not increase, but maybe you'll be able to still do the same things for longer. Um, and I mean, I'd say probably an increase. I just don't want to go to get canceled for saying something that <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I agree with you, Nick. Like if you're a, if you're a sport coach and you feel like you really understand the sports specific side of training for running or cycling or triathlon, and you're a training peaks wizard, I would challenge you to spend some time really learning as much as you can about like the mechanical side of things and the force output side of things and the force input into our body side of things, because that there is an illusory boundary between those two things, between the metabolic and the mechanical, that conditioning and the metabolic stuff is in one camp and that the um, mechanical stuff is just the realm of meatheads and that they don't involve each other at all. But if you marry those two together, then you're really starting to train. Um, you, you could start to use that word holistic, right? And, you know, Leslie described me that way. And that's something I really aspire to is to have a holistic understanding of the full landscape of training. And that's where my project is named after. Higher Ground Athletics is about getting to a high enough vantage point that we can see the full landscape of what is relevant and trainable and uh, potential paths forward to get somebody more prepared for the demands of their sport. And I think that a lot of people out there that are really skilled at preparing people ignore enormous parts of that landscape. And it's uh, something that needs to change and something that I feel like I've somehow stumbled into a unique perspective on. And I want, I want that to be the, my gospel, the same thing that you were saying right there is, you know, it, it needs to be part of the full picture of somebody's training. Otherwise you're not preparing yourself as well, as well as you could be. Yeah. I love it. You should do a Ted talk. You seem well, I've already got it going on. <laughs> yeah. I definitely am a good rambler. No, not a, everything's been valid for my person. I'm, I'm the rambler who just like answers. I get chastised all the time for answering the question that I'm asking the guest to answer. So anyway, they probably did that. The Nicole and Leslie always make fun of me. So even Tamara, uh, but again, thanks so much. You've got an awesome fiddle leaf fig behind you. Also, looks really healthy. Uh, good job. It's plastic. That's plastic. <laughs> yeah, get that shit out of here. We that's not holistic. Now you got to take it up with my wife. I'm gonna have to send you the fiddle leaf fig for Christmas. Um, but thanks, Keith. Um, we'll put all the info in your links to YouTube and Higher Ground Athletics. Your is it just .com? Yep. Highergroundathletics.com and then uh, underscores between the words for Instagram, okay. highergroundathletics. Yeah. yeah we'll thank you. Put it in the show notes. Um, I was hoping it wasn't highergroundathletics.swole. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Leslie, you did a great job. And thanks all of you for coming on to the show today. And uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, thank you both. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks. Talk to you next time. All right. I got ish to do, flying through the sky in my parachute, dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through.